with these older mom and pop and community skiers that we spoke of, uh, you have an aging infrastructure. A lot of the lifts are 50, 60, 70 years old. They're not making parts anymore. A brand new detachable whatever lift is in the millions. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, the smaller skiers are an endangered species in, in North America. And I think that's a problem. Powderhounds Podcast, a ski trivia game podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Shaw. You can follow me on Twitter at PowderhoundSkis. You can also email me at PowderhoundSkiTrivia at gmail.com for comments, questions, or corrections. Today's episode pulls back the curtain, just like Dorothy did in The Wizard of Oz, on what it takes to operate a small community or nonprofit ski area. Need a small ski area refresher? About 200 of the 460-ish U.S. lift serve ski areas are considered small. In terms of terrain, think roughly 80,000 to 100,000 annual skier visits and about a 1,500 to 1,600 foot vertical drop. Despite the group representing almost 50% of the U.S. ski area pie, small ski areas are an endangered species. To set the tone for the episode, our music inspiration is Can't Stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers because I can't stop talking about these awesome places. Need a lyric refresher? Here are a few related lines. Use two sticks to make it in the nature. They were talking about skiing, right? Complete the motion if you stumble. Pretty sure that's a yard sale reference. East Side Love is living on the West End. Well, I'm back east, and my guest is out west. And finally, why I need somebody new, just like you. Hopefully, you will feel the gravitational pull of the small community and nonprofit ski areas during this episode. Right on cue. So sit back, kick your feet up, relax, and enjoy the experience of everything skiing and riding. Powder hounds. Can't stop addicted to the shindig. Chop top, he says I'm gonna win big. Choose not to life of imitation. Distant bus into the reservation. Default the pistol that you pay for. Just pump the feeling that you stay for. In time, I want to be a best friend. My ski season focused on the little guys, small, community, and nonprofit ski areas. I've skied 24 different mom and pop or family run ski areas this winter season. That's right, just two days were turns on a mega pass mountain. And drum roll please, this was the most satisfying ski season in recent memory. Yet, all is not well in ski country. On a recent ski loop, I passed three lost ski areas you probably have too. Former Plymouth Notch and formerly Bear Creek, a private ski area along Route 100 in Vermont, 
that is sandwiched between Killington and Okemo that closed four years ago. Granite Gorge, along Route 9 in New Hampshire, has not reopened since COVID. Even the long-shuttered Maple Valley, along Route 30 in Vermont, still catches one's eye on the way to Bromley, Magic, or Stratton, despite its 22-year hibernation. Now, my younger self would have thought, when passing those closed operations, well, that checks out. Why would anyone want to ski there when bigger and better ski areas await further down the road? Alas, I've grown up. Well, a little bit anyway. Now, my current self thinks, how great would it be if those lifts were still spinning? Skiing there would be a nice change of pace. And then my mind wanders, well, wonders, how would one even attempt to reopen it? I had to speak to someone who knows about the business models and financial pressures on small ski area operations. So I tracked down Jamie Schechtman in the Italian Alps of all places. Jamie's worked in the ski industry for a long time with a focus on helping small ski areas be sustainable in the face of large mountain and corporate competition. Jamie co-founded the Mountain Riders Alliance, an organization that supported small ski areas by promoting an authentic skiing and riding experience. He was also the executive director of the Antelope Butte Foundation, which reopened the Antelope Butte Ski and Recreation Area, a mom and pop ski hill in northern Wyoming, after a seven-year nap. He later carved the path for Mount Abram in Maine to become carbon neutral through extensive use of solar power. Likewise, he has also worked with multiple ski areas to become Stoke certified. Not just a, yeah, bro, but an operational sustainability assessment tool that helps ski areas and other outdoor businesses reach the coveted triple bottom line, a business good for profits, people, and the planet. Jamie's work has been covered by Powder Magazine, Ski Magazine, and he even got a few lines in Heather Hansman's newish book, Powder Days. I cannot thank Jamie enough for taking a break from his powder days in the Alps to talk to me. I hope you leave the conversation agreeing that small, community, and nonprofit ski areas are important for the future of skiing. And perhaps even better, inspire you to visit a few next winter season. Let's go! I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Jamie Schechtman. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Just so we, uh, before we get into the main topic, uh, the importance of small community and nonprofit ski areas, so listeners get a chance to know you a bit. I've got a couple of rapid fire questions that I'd like to ask you. First off, how long have you been skiing and where did you start? Uh, age 13, uh, junior high ski trip. Then shortly thereafter, I saw the movie Hot Dog in high school. <laughs> I was a sophomore and I uh, said, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, skiing, I know what I want to do in my life. And I moved to Squaw Valley in, at the tender age of 18 to take a year off before college. And that turned into the rest of my life. And uh, I never went to college. Uh, and I've been skiing, averaging 100 days a year since then. Within those 100 days, what would you say your favorite terrain is? And I'll give you the ideal sort of powder day. Are you on the bumps, in the glades, cruise on groomers? In the backcountry on steeps? Uh, I, well, I'm a West Coast uh, skier, a Sierra skier, so uh, when I'm over 50, so I avoid bumps at all costs. We don't have much glades. That's more of an East Coast thing. 
I'm mm-hmm. a big mountain, uh, you know, fast skier, smooth. Uh, it's sort of the, the terrain that I, I look for. Well, there's a lot of powder out there, so that's, that's probably a good way to approach it. In terms of your ski day approach, would you say you're a first chair? Are you bell to bell? Or do you take a break in a nice Adirondack chair, let the sun hit your face? What do you, what, what's your approach to the day? All right, so if I'm skiing in the United States, uh, I, I go based upon when the conditions are best. Uh, I, by the way, I'm about 70% uh, ski resort, 30% backcountry. Uh, okay. More backcountry in the spring as the snowpack stabilizes in the Sierras, which is my home range. So I'm probably a three or four hour guy. If it's really good, I'll, I'll stay out till the end. Uh, I'm not really a bell-to-bell guy. Uh, and if I'm skiing in Europe and the Alps, and that's more of an all-day thing and a nice late lunch and work on my tan and check out the vibe and have a nice, you know, uh, meal out on the on the hillside overlooking thing and getting a little culture in. So it's sort of different depending where I'm at. Well, speaking of where you're at now, would you say where you're at now is a bucket list destination or uh, just chalk it up to just where you're skiing today and tomorrow? <laughs> uh, well, no, I'm in I'm the Alps right now and I'm, I'm based uh, in – uh, right now I'm in uh, uh, in northern Italy in a place called uh, close to Alanya, the Monte Rosa free ride paradise ski area. No, it's definitely a when there's snow, it's a pretty rad spot on the planet. I'd put it on the list. But anywhere in the Alps is pretty much a bucket list or an Alps trip, should I say, it would be a bucket list item for each and every skier and snowboarder on the planet, I think. All right. Well, I'm going to take your word for that. It's on my list. And uh, I'm sure I've actually heard it's on a lot of people's lists. <laughs> Someday. Yeah, yeah, it's, man. It's, you know, it's a mountain range with lifts running through it. So uh, they're doing things right here. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you're able to carve out, pun intended, uh, a little time for uh, us. Uh, and uh, I know that's it. That's the last one. Before we get into things, I wanted to ask you a broad, sweeping and loaded question just to kick things off. What is the state of skiing? <laughs> in North America, is a real problem. You've got a consolidation that started with Vail, and, can, and now you've got uh, Altera. And these two ski areas combined own, mm, last check, probably 35 40% of skier visitation for the whole North America ski industry. Uh, so you've got the consolidation, which is never good as a consumer. Then on the flip side, uh, you've got these smaller uh, mom and pop and community ski areas uh, that are getting squeezed out. That it's like when a Walmart moves to town and the mom and pop can't uh, uh, compete with it. Then on top of that, uh, you've got um, uh, climate change. And oh, by the way, Altera and Vale aren't stupid. They're buying all the ski areas that um, have the most reliable snowpack. Uh, so the climate change is, is, you know, the ski areas that aren't getting snow, uh, are are the ones uh, that aren't being bought by them. And then you have, with these older mom and pop and community skiers that we spoke of, uh, you have an aging infrastructure. A lot of the lifts are 50, 60, 70 years old. They're not making parts anymore. A brand new detachable whatever lift is in the millions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, the smaller skiers are an endangered species in, in North America. And I think that's a problem also would say that the pandemic has accelerated the whole thing uh, and uh, made you know the, the skiing more of a premium sport. Uh, on the West Coast, uh, Squaw Valley, uh, Palisades Tahoe, 
Lyft ticket is $229. Mammoth was $219 wow. at, uh, on a peak day. Wow. Uh, here I am in, in, in the Alps I mentioned. I skied in the, the Alberg the other day in mm-hmm. Austria, which oh. is uh, uh, 147,000 uh, skier visits, uh, 147,000 hourly uphill capacity. It's massive. There's like 88 lifts or something. Wow. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this ticket was 65 euros, so called $72 for a lift ticket. So, okay. So that's a long answer. The state of the ski industry is it's it's going exclusive, and uh, and it's a problem because the short sighted. You know, the the future kids aren't aren't coming up. Aren't they're not going to attract new skiers with that kind of sticker price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and that's sort of uh, definitely a loaded question. So no, no problem that uh, that you answered it thoroughly. And, and yeah, just it seemed to me that you know skiing's at a crossroads. You mentioned sort of the runaway corporate consolidation, worsening climate change, uh, capacity limits are being ignored in certain places. You know, locals are being priced out of their towns. And I think sort of that negativity then gets exacerbated by you know crowds that you see if you're not already on the mountain at those places. And yep. uh, variable ticket rates, as you mentioned, I don't know if those are locked in at uh, Palisades Tahoe and Mammoth, but uh, certain places it, it even changes depending on the day. Yet, and this is where maybe there's some positivity. I'm going to try to spin it towards yeah. uh, interest in the outdoors has soared. You know, certainly, unfortunately, thanks to the pandemic in part. And then some ski areas are adopting carbon neutral plans. Berkshire East in Massachusetts of all places, I believe is 100% um, carbon neutral with their wind turbine. Unfortunately, I think it's actually down right now. Um, a ski area in New York, uh, Old Hickory, was saved by their community. They're adopting this new model, which we'll get into a little later. Uh, and we talked about before we hit record, Mount of Scutney in Vermont, uh, a nonprofit came in and, and, and rebirthed that, or that, that ski area. Certainly small skiers are being celebrated uh, in northern Vermont because of the uh, Olympic success of the Cochrane family. And that's given them a little yeah. bit of uh, a little bit of uh, the spotlight, which is great. I was there earlier this year before the Olympics uh, and talked to those folks. How, you know, the excitement was riveting throughout that uh, 250 or 270 foot vertical drop, you know, on uh, maybe 15 acres ski area. And then uh, even in New Mexico, we got a benefit corporation at Taos. That's an operation. Yeah. So I guess I'm just, you know, again, long-winded way of suggesting or asking, are these positive signs kind of heading back in a right direction? I'll be a slow pace and not everyone's certainly adopting them. Uh, no, I'm an optimistic uh, person. And I think that a lot of these skiers, smaller skiers are crossroads and they're going to get a point where their owners are tired of losing money or aren't ready to write a check for a couple million for the aforementioned new lift. Mm-hmm. or or other aging infrastructure and they're going to be forced into uh a new model or they're going to go away and so uh you mentioned things on the east coast i have a little better understanding uh, of the west coast uh but you know i can give you some examples uh i was the executive director of a, a organization called the antelope butte foundation that was a ski area that was uh shuttered for six or seven years they formed a non-profit uh, not unlike uh, a scutney, pardon my uh, uh, pronunciation if that was right. Anyways, Antelope Butte Foundation <laughs> raised several million dollars in the local community as a nonprofit. They reopened. They got a ski area uh, again. Uh, you look at other nonprofit models, Mount Ashland, Oregon, another place I had the privilege of working. 
uh, and Mount Ashland's a 501c4, I want to say, and as a nonprofit model as as well. Maybe they're a C3, I can't remember. But Bogus Basin in Idaho is another a nonprofit. Then you got unique ones um, where they become part of the town, just like you have tennis courts and pools. You have you you create a general uh, improvement district like Diamond Peak and Incline. They all the homeowners in Incline, and by the way, Incline Village is one of the nicest, most wealthy probably zip codes on the planet, at least in the U.S. And so they add, I don't know, eight hundred dollars a year or something to each lot, and then they subsidize their ski area and keep it uh, accessible for all the residents. So there are total alternative models. Then there's the cooperative model, uh, which you know, Mad River Glen in, in Vermont is the first and really the only full co-op, Shane's uh, uh, Mountain Co-op in British Columbia, which I initiated way back. That started my career in this alternative model thing. Uh, That's a a cooperative. So there's a lot of alternative models, but, you know, it it needs needs to be owner. The the user group needs to become the owners, not one guy or, or the son or daughter of one guy that owned it for 60 years and certainly not a private equity firm or publicly traded company. Uh, it needs to be, in my opinion, the user group needs to, the ownership needs to shift to the uh, user group in one or more ways uh, to be uh, successful in the future. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to just sort of go back to the uh, Antelope Butte Foundation. I did uh, read about that. That's uh, uh, just a wonderful success story. And uh, that's awesome. You're a part of it. And also want to just comment on Diamond Peak. I was there uh, a few seasons ago and I saw that they are, uh, I think, one of maybe four ski areas that are Stoke certified, which I'll probably going to ask you about in a little bit. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I was I was really excited when I heard heard all the cool things they're doing to really kind of put themselves not only on a sustainable path, but just, you know, be a be a great alternative experience for for folks visiting the Tahoe region. But uh, you did obviously with with just mentioning some of the other skiers you worked with, I just want to talk a little bit about Mountain Riders Alliance that was created to help these uh, smaller ski areas to compete in the larger mountain world. And can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the organization, who was involved uh, and, and how you kind of worked with the, the nonprofits to promote them and sort of maybe get them on a little bit stronger path to sustainability? Yeah, uh, myself and some other like-minded people realized there was a problem uh, with the future of the ski industry. And so we formed this, this it was actually an LLC, not a nonprofit uh, Though we didn't make much money, but we were a nonprofit, uh, <laughs> and and so uh, we formed this this organization uh, to to figure out solutions to helping these smaller skiers, and we created a a consortium, and we did things like we had weekly phone calls in season to talk about challenges. Uh, we looked into bulk buying discounts. We looked into creating an insurance pool. We created before the Indy Pass. We created a mountain playground pass. And uh, we, we attempted uh, several times. So we did consultant work. You know, I mentioned we also worked at Mount Abram. That was our first gig. Mount Abram, to- by the way, was the second biggest uh, solar panel. We installed, uh, well, Mount Abram with our assistance installed uh, the second biggest solar panel array at the time in the industry and became 100% of really close uh, net neutral. Pretty Amazing. proud of that. Congratulations, uh, yeah. And, uh, and so... 
the Mountain Rise Alliance did a lot of different things, and we we tried on several occasions to acquire a ski area, and um, and then with that we wanted to really implement all of our model, which was the triple bottom line, and we wanted to create a community ownership model. But alas, it never was the right fit, and honestly, we were ahead of our time. I bet you if we did with the kind of a gumption and energy we had then now it started in 2007 or eight we tried doing that now 15 years later we'd be way more received i think in hindsight we were we were ahead of our time but still that's that's amazing you know you saw what was going to happen i mean this is before you know i mean i think the epic pass was maybe a couple years old by then and there was certainly no yeah altera there was still there might have been american ski company still at least remnants of it that was Um, just at the end end of (laughs) their tenure but hal clifford's book uh uh downhill the downhill slide why corporate skiing is bad for the environment communities and and that whole thing uh uh that was sort of the Bible that started us on that path. And yeah, you could say we, we could have uh, gotten the golden telescope award, but, uh, but I'm still passionate about it. You know, I'm out of, out of that um, space now, but uh, I'm pleased to talk to you about it. And I'm hopeful that some other small uh, independent community areas uh, might get a little spark to look into a a new alternative way to, to stay in business. Yeah, and that's really, you know, the, the, uh, my interest and excitement when uh, I was able to connect with you as I, as I talked about my day job is in the nonprofit world and working for a state association that, like Mountain Riders Alliance, convenes like-minded people and organizations. We happen to offer group purchasing on certain products as well as discounts for member organizations to help them both advance their mission while also relieving the pressure, at least a little bit, on their bottom line. So that nonprofit experience coupled with years on the slopes, and I've noticed, you know, just noticing that there's a lot of nonprofit ski areas, there's certainly a lot of small ski areas, and they are awesome. No joke, I think 97% of my visits were (laughs) at a small nonprofit or community-based ski area. And um, it was it was intentional. I will admit that. And uh, I really wanted to get a different experience, and I did. Seems like uh, it, it's critically important to to see these areas succeed, to make sure they're there, whether they're feeder hills or certainly community assets that they uh, they survive. And uh, what models are are there for them? Have the small ski areas pivoted to attract perhaps frustrated customers? Have they? What else can they do to try to compete in that space? get the users to be the owners and then they're the best salesmen. When I met with Matt, when we were starting this whole thing out, I had a chance to meet uh, with Mad River Glen's uh, Eric Friedman character. <laughs> and uh, he said, <laughs> you know, they were the first and really the only ski area co-op that's, you know, and he says, first we take their money and then they become volunteers for life he says we don't pay for web design we don't pay for legal we don't pay for cutting our trails in the summer all of our people are vested and they're our best marketing department our best sales uh people are our co-op members so i think if you flip it and then there's a sense of pride you know if you own stock in apple right you're not going to buy a pc you own stock in coke you're not going to drink pepsi so uh, i think part of it is the conversion of the ownership well, that's interesting you say that because I think I hinted briefly of uh, this ski area in New York State, Old Hickory. 
Uh, I don't know if you know anything about it, but essentially they created a similar model that you're describing, sort of the buy-in and then you become invested. But essentially they're creating a, I think what they're calling a historic preservation license to, for season pass holders to access the upper mountain that gets just great terrain, but unfortunately the snow uh, like doesn't accumulate as it once did. So you can't really have that many skiers up there or it gets just, just totally skied out and uh, not, there's no snowmaking, so there's no way to replenish it. It's a model that they're working on now. And I think there was a quote that said, you know, locals are happy to pay into it because they know everything is going back into the mountain and it's that point of pride. Yep. Now there are a few other models that I just want to kind of get your take on. I mentioned Taos is I think the only benefit corporation. And the only B Corp. Yep. Yep. For folks that don't know, part of their purpose is for a public good or a social purpose. Uh, that's a metric, you know, used alongside their profit margin. And Taos, I think, is the only one. And there's also, let's see, we got the co-op at Mad River Glen. We got the preservation license. Oh, I guess, yeah, they just, I guess just that I, I was boiling down the nonprofit model in three buckets. Nonprofit, all volunteer, no lift. Nonprofit, all volunteer, and then nonprofit with staff. The nonprofit wor- model works much better in affluent neighborhoods. Oh, because there, you know, people are writing a check for a tax break. So, uh, Antelope mm-hmm. Butte Foundation was uh, in northern Wyoming, but there's a lot of oil money close to there. Antelope, uh, sorry, Mount Ashland nonprofit. Uh, Ashland in southern Oregon is a affluent neighborhood, and um, it's so both of those are you know focus based, and I, I haven't spent much time in um, Boise, but that's a nonprofit too. So. Um, then there's the other one. There's like a, a nonprofit that's more of a ski club, like Bridger Bowl, which is probably the greatest. And one of the things they all have in common are really cheap lift tickets, or comparatively cheap lift tickets. Uh, so the nonprofit not only keeps them in business, but but keeps the price point down, and thus opens the the ski area to all, not just the upper crust. Yeah, I actually, it's funny you say that. I was, I was, I was looking, I actually wanted to break down a little bit sort of the difference maybe between maybe a small skier and a nonprofit skier because it is different. And at least my thinking, which I probably should have set up front, small skier is generally smaller in acreage, single or independently owned, you know, focus, you know, the operation on hill, you know, not a lot of glitz and glamour. Um, and obviously lots no of no frills, no yeah. frills, and that's also, it. lots of spills, but no frills. <laughs> usually <laughs> under, usually under 80 or a hundred thousand skier visits, usually under about 1500, 1600 vertical feet. Yep. Uh, yep. even on the West coast, that's sort of the sweet spot for these smaller ones. And again, I, as I mentioned, Altera and Vale bought up the, the big ones and the ones that get snow. They get a lot of snow and are close to a population base. That's another big thing. You know, if you have uh, 10 million people within a couple hours drive, it's a lot easier than uh, 50,000 people in the 20 minute drive. Yeah. And and then just kind of teasing it out a little bit more, the, 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 so the nonprofits ski areas are a little bit more complex in terms of their appearance. Uh, Like I think you mentioned bogus base in Idaho I, I looked them up. They have 2,600 acres of skiable terrain. Vertical is definitely over 1,000. Yeah, you have Brattleboro Ski Hill, Brattleboro, Vermont, with all two acres and a 200-foot wow. vertical drop. 
Uh, but uh, believe it or not, <laughs> the price difference between those two tickets, daylift tickets, and uh, your Palisades Tahoe Mammoth, uh, five bucks for Brattleboro Ski Hill, not a surprise, but, but Bogus Basin, 49 bucks on a weekend. Certainly not two, would you say 229 and I think two, 215. Point being is just the nonprofit ski areas are, are quite varied in how big they are and obviously where they are and, and kind of who's involved. The other thing I've been thinking about, and I just want to get your take on it, it sounds like you'd experimented it with Mountain Riders Alliance, but uh, could there be like a nonprofit ski area uh, frequency pass? You, you dropped Indy Pass, something like that, yeah. but just for like nonprofits. Uh, and uh, despite the big range that I just laid out there between <laughs> the one in Vermont and the one in Idaho. Yeah, there there could, but they're not destination ski areas in the first place. So are you going to, are you going to realistically, are you going to go from Vermont to Idaho in this, you know, in the same season? It's not like a, you know, the, the corporate pass where you, they're all destination uh, areas. So yes, there could, I think uh, uh, going a step further, if you took all these smaller ski areas and you put them under uh, one umbrella, one maybe bigger nonprofit, and you could share some expenses, maybe you could share some media buys, maybe you could share you could some sort of an insurance pool. Uh, if you were buying rental equipment and you had five skiers buying rental equipment, you would probably get a cheaper price. So achieving economies of scale. So maybe the play might be to get a non a, a parent nonprofit and get a lot of these skiers under one. Uh, That'd be a pretty unique twist on things that might work in 2022 and beyond. Yeah, just uh, sort of where we are and, and at least people I've talked to and just observations. Uh, people seem to have more fun at smaller community-based and nonprofit ski areas. It's got soul. They, got, they have soul. Soul's like class. You either have it or you don't. And these smaller ski areas, you know, are quirky and the old uh, – lodge and the you know the somebody plugging in a crock pot and an outlet or whatever that's that's soulful that's unique that's something you don't get at a cookie cutter alpine foe village you know corporate homogenized ski area yeah the uh the lifties over at macaulay mountain in new york they were uh they perfected the art of you know not that there was a lift line and you needed to wait and be entertained but they perfected the uh i guess snowball art they had these molds that they made with, uh, I guess, leftover, you know, parts or whatever and, and lined them up on the railing. And it was just just a fun thing that uh, I couldn't help but notice. And people were taking pictures. And it was like this whole scene that just kind of just appeared out of seemingly nothing. And they didn't have to do that. And it was just it was just made everyone smile. Uh, what could be better? Maybe, you know, how can the average skier and rider you know, support you know, a nonprofit or small ski areas? Is it really just sort of visiting the ones in your neighborhood? Or uh, is there kind of other ways to get engaged? And because uh, I think we all want to see these ski areas survive, even if we don't ski them regularly. Yeah, throw them a bone. Take a visit. Next time it's a Saturday and you're in some long line, uh, think about, wow, I could be at this place that might have a little less terrain, uh, might have a little less snow or less vertical drop, but I'm not going to be standing here with a bunch of uh, elitists. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what I do. Okay, certainly they do, you know, volunteer, uh, you know, clean trail cleanup days, and pretty much everyone probably will graciously accept a donation. In terms of the nonprofit model, again, just my day job, can't help but think, you know, partnerships, collaborations are essential.
Uh, well, so so my experience working at nonprofit ski areas was that you know, like at Mount Ashland, we we're like, hey, we're a nonprofit. What's our? Can you give us the nonprofit rate? That was for radio ads. That was for okay. Yeah, that's uh, all. Yeah, yeah, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so companies don't advertise it, but if you're already a if you're a nonprofit. You get discount pretty much everything, uniforms, at co- and and companies want to align themselves and hitch their cart to a nonprofit. So then the nonprofit uh, model can be utilized. Uh, I, uh, the other models I mentioned were the co-op, the uh, the creating a general improvement district where the where the community is adding, uh, paying for it or subsidizing or help keep the cost down for the ski area. Um, a ski club, which I think is what you mentioned with Hickory, is pretty close to that, I believe. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to, uh, you know, it's not a one size fits all. Each ski area is unique, and the, the the people around it are unique. You look at a place like Magic Mountain, also in Vermont. That was some soulful uh, users that that loved the mountain, cared about it, put their money together, bought it, and turned it around and branded it as the you know, non-corporate ski area on the East Coast and got a ton of free press and powder and everything else. And everyone knows about Magic Mountain, even though it's, you know, not a huge ski area, but it's, it, it, they built, they played to their strengths. So they, they sure have. And I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> if I answered your question, but yeah, that's my two cents worth on that. No, that's helpful. Yeah, I know Jeff is, is Hathaway has been uh, on social and, and taking, taking the shots in terms of no lines. And I was there, I was one of, one of the places I've been to. And yeah, yeah. it's, there is a magic about it. But, uh, and I do mean that with sincerity, as much as the pun uh, kind of works. Yeah, just the double chair to the summit. I know they're going to be spinning a quad eventually, but it's just, it just forces you to talk to someone. And I just had some really memorable conversations with complete strangers. And the week before I was at that one place that's owned by a corporate organization. <laughs> there was silence on the lift ride. Yeah. And you're like, what? what? You know, so it's anyway, I did have a great time at Magic. Yeah, that's part of, I guess, the reflection looking back on the season, although it's not over. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit to, I guess, maybe where we started, but a little bit more on this sustainability path and some of the practices that I'm wondering are certainly the larger uh, ski areas are, are trying to adopt and certainly writing about it, posting about it, you know, how important it is for smaller ski areas to adopt them when they can, again, not with the same resources, certainly with not the same economies of scale that the larger um, ski areas have. Specifically, you know, I, I saw the NSAA, National Skiers Association, has this sustainable, sustainable slopes program. Um, where you know, ski areas make pledges to demonstrate their commitment to you know energy efficiency, waste management, forest health, climate action, et cetera. There's the Stoke certification I think I mentioned about Diamond Peak, um, yep. and you know again that's sustainable tourism and outdoors kit for evaluation. You know how important is it for the small ski areas to maybe adopt those practices, or you know, what resources are out there to help them do that? Sure. A couple of things. Uh, first, I would point out that after payroll, electricity is typically the number two or number three expense. Uh, insurance would be the other one uh, for a ski area. Secondly, I'd point out that virtually every ski area is well positioned to make renewable en- en- energy in the form of s- solar, 
wind, hydro, some places geothermal, and they're already connected to the grid. So it, you know, uh, it, it's silly that that people aren't thinking longer term. It doesn't have a very quick ROI. It's not like you know, in, in year two or three, it, it's going to pay for itself. But it, it there's that. Of course, by uh, by converting to renewable energy, you're going to do your part to help uh, you know reduce climate change. Is the ski area going to change the world? Probably, probably not. But you fill in the karma basket. Uh, and three, there's a growing uh, group of people that want to support sustainability uh, and and ski. Any company that is doing the right thing, Patagonia comes to mind, and there's a whole bunch of other corporations, uh, companies that yeah, the the companies and corporations that are are doing the right thing. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense. And um, uh, there's it could be a lot more of it. You mentioned the N- NSAA when we were started with the with the Mountain Riders Alliance, we pushed them quite a bit to you know to take this as part of their platform. Uh, this is you know the late 2000s and early around 2009 2010. So I'm I'm thrilled to hear that they've they've got a, a much broader initiative with respect to Stoke. We worked uh, closely with them on a few projects and they created a, a kit. They, they, they like do an evaluation of your business over a bunch of different criteria. I think it's like 168 point evaluation and it's, it's over. I can't remember now, uh, obviously climate, but also like uh, geopolitical and social and local demographics and a whole bunch of things. And, and uh, so uh, you don't have to rewrite a ski area. doesn't have to rewrite book, but rather get involved with a program that already exists and they'll walk you through it and say, you know, you should start with not letting your cars idle. You could switch to, uh, you know, reusable bottles. You can look for grants and, and ways to help pay for some of this renewable energy implementation. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, I think I picked this up from, Diamond Peaks uh, Stoke certification plan. They, uh, yeah, they engaged. So just in terms of the community engagement piece, like something as simple as engaging local artists, uh, they created a kid's coloring book featuring like native plants that they've replanted at the ski area. And obviously kids, the next generation learning about these things, being a little bit more connected to the the natural asset. And then I, I also, I think that was somehow linked up to Alta over in Utah, they're, Cotton Canyon Foundation, they arrange one hour tours with naturalists to ski, hang out, identify species, snow tracks, et cetera. Just again, this, this idea of trying to get a little closer to the land, a little bit more appreciation um, so that, you know, when you have those decisions about whether doing a day trip by yourself in your car or, you know, buying that plastic, you know, <laughs> wrapped item, you know, you kind of maybe think twice on, on some of those decisions that over time, you know, do add up. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you about too is lost ski areas. Um, there are a lot of them. Uh, 604 in New England alone. I think you were quoted as uh, telling uh, Heather Hansman in her book, Powder Days, not too long ago, there were 730 ski areas in the US. Now there are, I think, just under 470. Certainly some of those were small and probably just couldn't compete, maybe just a rope toe and uh, doesn't maybe snow there as much anymore. So just couldn't make the numbers work, but I'm sure there's others and some that I've driven by recently that I kind of stop and wonder, could that place, you know, 
get turned around or turned on uh, if a nonprofit kind of came in or some other model was adopted, ownership changes, because it really is a great alternative to larger and corporate dominated ski areas that are just kind of being overrun right now. Actually, down the road in Plymouth, Vermont, between Okemo and Killington, there's a Plymouth Notch. It closed in 2018. I think 1,300 foot vertical drop, decent acreage. Yeah, it's on the market for $7.5 million. <laughs> a few friends were thinking about trying to pull resources to buy it. But since that's probably not going to happen, you know, is, is a nonprofit model sort of the way to see that place not just kind of fall back into the forest, kind of take it back? It comes down, it comes down to the people around it. So in a, a nonprofit model, you have to have some people with expendable income that are believe in it, you, you know, you just, and you have to have movers and shakers. You got to have some people in the, in the community that are committed to it, that want to see it happen and, um, and kind of take a leading role, the first adapters, if you, if you will. So really without knowing it specifically where this is in Vermont, it, it comes down to the community surrounding it and the importance that they want to see their kids be able to recreate. Like I mentioned before, it's a lot like for a lot of these smaller, it's like having a, a volleyball court or a pool or tennis courts or something. It's another, it could be another community asset. Keeps people, keeps the kids, you know, after school, something to do, gives them a passion, uh, families recreate together. So if it's looked at through that lens and the community, you've got some movers and shakers in the community ready to kind of take the torch. It can totally go, totally happen. Yeah, and that's definitely the observation, you know, I had from uh, at least you know, Cochran's uh, ski area, the, the Olympic ski family uh, up in Northeast Slopes, same kind of thing. You, know, you can really tell that uh, it's, it's a community asset and that it's, it's the gathering place in that community. Everybody in the lift line is chatting constantly and they're not necessarily in the same group. You can kind of uh, tell that, you know, they, they know each other quite well. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I, I also wanted to kind of go back to the sustainability question and ask you something that's been, it's kind of hard not to notice. You know, snowmaking is obviously a part of a, a sustainability plan, but kind of runs counter to climate concerns and just the cost of energy, as you said, electricity maybe being the second highest cost for a nonprofit ski area and probably a small ski area for that matter. So I guess what's your take on snowmaking? Because uh, on one hand, it kind of, you need snow to operate, but at the other hand, you know, it's obviously contributing to a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess yeah, I have, an, yeah. I have an outside the box thought on snowmaking. Uh, if you happen to be uh, from England or spent time there or Scotland, uh, you would come across these slopes that are made out of plastic, and they're like uh, it's like skiing on a wet toothbrush, like a bristles that they they water down. And okay. I had a chance to go over there and ski a, a few of those for a project that I was working on at the time, and. It's a pretty unique concept in that once it snows four, six, eight inches, depending on the, the density of the snow, you, you can ski on top of it. So I challenge a skier. I think there's one in Connecticut called maybe Powder Ridge or something. Yeah, there's Powder Ridge. Yeah. Yeah, look at me pulling out East Coast skier as well. And there's one in Minnesota called, I'm going to forget it for now, something hill. It's very close to Minneapolis. Um and those are both ski areas that are year-round ski areas on this this synthetic surface. But then, when it snows, uh, it 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 becomes a regular ski skiing. So instead of trying to make snow and hope for temperatures and blowing a bunch of energy, 
you could kind of create something unique that works. And so I, I just cited two skiers that are actually doing it. So instead of putting in a multi-million dollar uh, environmentally uh, challenging electric draining um, system, take a look at that. I think that is a unique concept that uh, these two skiers that I mentioned are already doing. Well, I thank you for dropping that. And Powder Ridge is probably 40 minutes from my front door. And I have not been there in a long time. And I absolutely have a reason to check them out now. Yeah, synthetic slope. When it snows enough, it's snow on top of the slope. So it's just a regular slope. But when it's not enough, uh, you know, you see these ski areas. There's probably a bunch on the East Coast that have that something synthetic at the lift ramp. You know, instead of trying to pile snow there. Well, these slopes... They've kind of mastered it, and I skied on them in the summer in England, my shorts, uh, and, uh, you know, it was best when it was misted. There was one day where it was drizzling, and I said, oh, it's like a powder day. It, it was faster, and, and the carving is almost, it's almost, it's not precise, like skiing like a really precise, uh, perfect groomer, but it, it's pretty similar, and so... That's my outside-the-box thought on snowmaking. I love it. I'm going to have to explore that rabbit hole uh, certainly a little bit deeper. But thank you for bringing it to my attention. Yeah, I guess, what else? What other innovative operational infrastructure or ideas are out there for sort of that struggling ski area that's just trying to stay open? All right, a few of them. Ask the big guys for help. Uh, the, the bigger skiers realize that the smaller skiers are actually the gateway drug to them. So they got hand-me-down stuff that's probably sitting in some yard somewhere that would be, you know, I don't know if you saw, hey, Spalding, are you done with my fat? It's not quite that, but Caddyshack reference. But, <laughs> but, but seriously, you might see, you might see, um, you might see uh, bigger ski resorts helping the smaller ski areas. Uh, creating an annual festival or unique signature event uh sunday river uh the river uh yeah they have the the wife carrying contest in the summer which is what it sounds like it's like (laughs) an obstacle course where you carry your mate up and down a hill and over obstacles and stuff that's a quirky thing but so a signature event and then um most ski areas actually could be a killer outdoor music venue most of them have a slope in front of the lodge it's slanted and you can create like a, you know, a week long, weekend, whatever. Uh, it does it happen? Doesn't happen overnight. But you can create an annual music event, or create an amphitheater, or something. And then people come in the summer and go and make friends, and go to the bar and have a good time, or whatever. And then they come back. So those are a few off the top of my head that come to mind. And uh, branding your your community ski area as that a community ski area, being more involved in the community uh differentiating from the corporate uh thing you know no lines here some fun cheap social media uh messaging uh poking at the big guys it's always fun so think it outside the box but playing to your strengths and the strength is it's the anti-corporate it's the it's you know like i said the the crock pot plugged into the wall the corner cooking chili for lunch or skiing in jeans or whatever the flavor of the week is for that particular area. The wicket ticket. (laughs) (laughs) 
I've been uh, counting how many of those I've acquired this year, about half a dozen. Yeah, and actually it's funny, the big guy helping the little guy, uh, when I was talking to the folks at Mount Escutney in Vermont, they did say that Stratton was getting rid of a groomer and um, they put it on the market for, you know, whatever it was value was. And they were able to sell it to Scutney for substantially lower price. Yeah, they were able to, to kind of make that happen. And that was something that Scutney was desperate for uh, to get. Yeah, ask Big Brother open. for help. I'm looking at the clock. So I did want to try to pivot at least to, 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 to closing out. And we usually have a few trivia questions related to the topic of the episode. So I prepared five Boy. to help close this out. Are you, <laughs> Jamie, are you ready? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. What you got? All right. So the first one's open-ended. As a percentage, about how many U.S. ski areas are owned or operated by a nonprofit? I couldn't find a hard number on this. I think the low 20, I want to say around 22 or 24-ish. And, um, ish. and if there's 470 in operation, well, that's, you're going to have to pull your calculator out for me on that one. But <laughs> about 20 some odd out of 470 is the, uh, the answer. Okay. Yeah. I was doing a, a rough, rough count. And yeah, it's pretty much half are in the East, half are in the West, and maybe there's two in the Midwest. And it did come out to about two dozen. So I think you're right on that one. Uh, okay. It was in line with my estimate. So, but yeah, it's just kind of funny. You can't kind of find out. It's, it's a tough stat to track down. So I, I figured I'd ask you. Second question, what nonprofit skier is the largest? And when I say largest, I mean skiable terrain in the U.S.? I gotta uh, think, but uh, I would, I would say Bogus Basin or Bridger Bowl. One well, of the is, it is a multiple choice question, but I'm going to give it to you because you said it first. Uh, Bogus Basin in Idaho is the correct answer. Just again, for folks who haven't been there, Bogus Basin, Idaho, it's actually unique in the fact that it's always been run uh, as a nonprofit, uh, according to their website. And yeah, they're at 2,600 skiable acres, I think I mentioned earlier in the episode. And according to Ski Magazine, uh, an article from November 2020, Sun Valley success or nearby Sun Valley success as a destination ski area got the Treasure Valley community thinking maybe they should create their own piece of paradise. And they did. So good job on that. All right. Number three, we're cooking. It's also a similar multiple choice. Uh, what nonprofit ski area was the first to become Stoke certified? You might have actually said this already in our conversation. Yeah, the, the multiple choice is Black Mountain, Maine, Bogus Basin. Idaho, Bridger Bowl, Montana, or Mount Ashland in Oregon? Mount Ashland, Oregon. Boom. Three for three. Circle gets the square. Yeah, 2017. Uh, and then we also talked about Diamond Peak, got their Stokes certification in 2018. And I did see that fellow nonprofit ski areas, Hurricane Ridge in Washington and Mount Abram in Maine, are benchmarked, but not yet certified. Uh, so they should be hopefully moving in that direction. We'll hear about them soon. All right, three for three. Here we go. Number four, almost done. Of Vermont's 23 public ski areas, seven are now owned or operated by nonprofit entities. Well, you know what? <laughs> I, uh, I might have given away the answer to that one. Can you name, how many Vermont nonprofit ski areas can you name? <laughs> uh, we mentioned a scrutiny. Yeah, uh, you got one. Uh, Cochran's. Yeah, no, we got two. 
Yeah. No, they are. They are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in the uh, 90s, they officially went from family run to a nonprofit. Yeah. Well, I got to take a mulligan on this one because, uh, you know, I don't live anywhere close to Vermont. I know. This is not you know, fair. This is not this fair. Is a, this is, yeah. But, and I, but I was on a roll. The first three I feel pretty good about. And it was my fault. I read the question wrong. Uh, this happens sometimes. Uh, the other right. uh, seven, though, are uh, Brattleboro Ski Hill, Hardack in St. Albans, Linden Outing Club, Middlebury College Snowball, and then Suicide Six, which is also part of the Woodstock Inn in and Resort. Um, all right, number five, and this is it. Local Freshies published an article before the start of this past ski season or this ski season titled Time for Plan B, 10 of the Best Small Ski Resorts to Ski This Season. First, I'm curious your take on the term small ski resorts, but uh, second to the question, <laughs> which one reborn East Coast ski area made the list? So nine of the 10 small ski resorts on the Local Freshies article list are out west one was in the east which one yeah that's it it's a fill in the blank any guesses here for the clean sweep the first part of the question was to differentiate which was one of the top 10 resorts to what to visit Uh, yeah they they said the article was about the best small ski resorts yeah if it's the east coast it's got to be magic mountain yeah all right no it's uh it's 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 uh saddleback up in maine Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah. that's a unique story. They were another ski area that was defunct and closed for a while, and they're, they got really lucky. They found some, whether they got an all-star working for them. Remember I said earlier on uh, that, that to make this stuff happen, you need mover and shakers. Well, they had a guy named Andy Shepard, and he was he, he did something at Black, Black Mountain in Maine. And then, uh, so he... I think he had something to do with getting the right people there and, and they uh, invested the right amount of money and, and the rest is history. Uh, as far as the half part of the question about uh, small ski resorts, I think that's an oxymoron. I think it should be a ski, a small ski area, no offense to local freshies. A ski resort is into, you know, uh, uh, sushi and, 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 and shopping malls and, and water slides and stuff where, where uh, a, a ski area would be more no frills, more basic uphill transportation, lower price point, exclusivity for uh, all, uh, that sort of thing. So I'm calling small ski resorts somewhat of an oxymoron since you asked. Yes, no, I'm glad because I, I, I definitely was, wasn't sure what the take was there, the hot take, but I'm glad I asked. And uh, yeah, this was definitely kind of more the trick question because Saddleback, not a nonprofit ski area, <laughs> not a small ski area. I mean, it's it's 2,000 foot vertical drop, about 500 acres of skiable uh, terrain and not a resort either. I mean, I was there in December and there's just a base lodge up that uh, yep. five mile dirt, mostly dirt access. Up there in Rangeley. Way up there in Maine, up there in the, up there in the kingdom, I think they call that there. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. No, not the kingdom. No, the the. Oh, the northeast kingdom. Yeah, that's that's uh that's yeah. yeah that's Vermont. Vermont. No, but there's yeah. a name for that part of uh, Maine, but I can't think of it right now. The county. The county. That's uh, right. Yeah. It's the county. That's right. I'm, I'm more down east Maine. But hey, uh, Jamie, I'm really, really appreciate you being a good sport about that. Uh, yeah, I was on what? your roll. I was feeling real good about three. <laughs> we should have just stopped it there, but whatever. I wasn't a very good student, so I, I think I still passed. Absolutely. I disqualified the fourth one. Yeah, uh, okay. absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Definitely passed flying colors. I like to call uh, it sort of the closing bit, uh, the last chair. 
anything you know we we didn't talk about i missed uh, muffed uh, or anything that you want to plug or just uh, mention um, as we sort of close out and, and just sort of again re reinforce the importance of supporting small community and nonprofit ski areas uh, yeah i just think there's probably some owners that are, are about at, done with their season for the year and they're looking at their finances and pulling their hair and saying oh what am i going to do i don't want to keep financing this think outside the box talk to the talk to your user group talk to a couple mover and shakers in the in the community and and throw some ideas together and and, and see what see if anything sticks uh, but don't just let it die uh, at least go down fighting and i think that's just a conversion uh to the user group being the owners in that as we talked about could be nonprofit or a variety of other ways but don't don't let your ski hill die it's an endangered species but it is could be saved with some outside the box thinking well again uh jamie i, I can't thank you enough for not only taking the time to speak to me but speaking to me from a uh, a different time zone in a different country. So thank you again. And I hope our paths will cross uh, in the uh, not too distant future. And hopefully it's a bright one for the ski industry. Amen to that. Thank you for having me. Looks like it's four o'clock. Time to catch the last chair. Thank you for listening. Have a question, comment, or correction? Email me at powderhoundskitrivia at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Powderhound Skis. Better yet, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast Manager, Verbal, Spotify, and Stitcher. Just type Powderhounds Podcast. Until next time, see you on the slopes, Powderhounds.